Good morning, everyone. It has been some time. I hope you haven't forgotten, but we are studying together the book of Galatians. I think the last time we were here in Galatians was the month of September, so it has been some time. Some weeks have passed, but today, this Sunday, we are going to pick up where we left off in the book of Galatians, chapter 4. And so I invite you to take your Bible, turn with me to that portion of God's Word. Again, Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to take it that we are all familiar with the word conversion. Uh, Undoubtedly, you have heard that word many times. Undoubtedly, you have used that word many times. Uh, It has many meanings in our day and age. Uh, This past week, I picked up a dictionary. I can't remember which one. But I looked up the word conversion, and here's what I found. A change in currency or units of measurement, right? We understand that. A change in character, form, or function. A change in attitude or emotion. A change from one religion, political viewpoint, political position to another. And then lastly, a spiritual change from sinfulness to righteousness. Well, you can guess which of those definitions interests us this day. Uh, You guessed it, conversion, a spiritual change from sinfulness to righteousness. And it is what Paul describes in very concise terms in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in the 8th verse. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Our concern, our interest this day is the word conversion. Before we get there, however, what's going on here? That's the point we need to start at. That's our point of departure. What is happening? What is transpiring? as Paul pens these words to the churches of Galatia. By way of review, and very quickly, if you've been here, undoubtedly you do recall this. Paul planted these churches. Off he went on his missionary journeys, and he passed through this region known as Galatia, modern-day Turkey, sort of the southern region. He preached the gospel Uh, People came to saving faith, saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. He gathered them in local churches, appointed elders over them, and off he went. In his absence, what happened? Uh, False teachers infiltrated the churches. Uh, Unconverted Jews infiltrated these churches. And these unconverted Jews began to to teach what? Uh, Look. The Apostle Paul, he's not, in a real, he's not a real apostle. At least he's not on the level of Peter and James and the other apostles. 
And you know, when it's all said and done, Paul is actually teaching a deficient gospel. Let me set you straight and let me fill in the gaping void in Paul's teaching. Here it is. You must still live according to the law. And so God instituted that covenant. It's known as the Mosaic Covenant with the nation of Israel. And that law, it is still necessary for us today. Yes, we believe in the Lord Jesus. That's fine. But it's still necessary for us to live under that law if we really want to be saved, if we really want to be sanctified, if we really want to be spiritual. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to confute to respond to that kind of thinking. And he asks the Galatians, oh, who has bewitched you? You have literally been bewitched. You have literally been deceived. And he piles on argument after argument to demonstrate the folly of that thinking according to which an individual, yes, must believe in the Lord Jesus, that's fine. But to be really saved and make progress in the Christian journey must now go back and live under the requirements of the Mosaic Covenant. And you know, when we just narrow it all down, right, just get right down to the, to, the, to the heart of the matter, we discover, as Paul writes this letter, and we get into what he says, that really the problem is with a deficient view of redemptive history, a deficient view of God's plan of redemption. And so Paul sets the record straight and he explains, look, here, here's, here's, what, here's, here's the foundation. Here's where we need to begin. Let's go all the way back to our father, Abraham. And let's remember that promise God made to Abraham. Here it was, in you, in your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All right? So we understand there's a promised seed coming. We get it. There's a promised individual coming in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, let's also remember, let's recall, how was Abraham saved? He wasn't saved by works. He most certainly wasn't saved by the law because the law came 400 years after Abraham. How was Abraham saved? He was justified by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, fast forward. Okay, we now understand, we understand salvation will be in an individual a coming Savior, just as God had promised after the fall way back in Genesis 3.15. We now get it. Someone is coming. A Messiah is coming. A Christ is coming. A Redeemer, a Savior is coming. And in Him, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And we understand how this salvation will come. It will be by grace through faith. Now, fast forward. What happened? Until the coming of this promised seed. Well, God instituted the law a covenant with Moses. That covenant was never given to save anyone. We already know how people are saved. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in this individual who is coming. So why was the law given? The law was given to prepare for his coming. And all of those feasts and festivals, all of those sacrifices and offerings, all of those cleansing laws and dietary laws, they all pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham's argument, if you follow it through, is simply this. The promised seed, guess what? He's come, and his name is the Lord Jesus. That means what? 
that that stage of infancy under the law, the law was really just a tutor, a teacher to prepare us for the coming of the Lord Jesus. That age of infancy has now passed away. We've arrived at adoption as sons. We've arrived at adulthood. That means that the law is now what? It is obsolete. And so those of your number who are teaching you that faith in the Lord Jesus is not enough, those in your churches who are now deceiving you into thinking that you must go back and live under that law, please understand they don't understand, they don't grasp the first thing concerning redemptive history. What an absolute absurdity that you would now go live back under that which the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled. That is the crux of his argument. And he piles argument upon argument. We come to another here in chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, and it's very simple. There is nothing complicated here, but let me warn you at the outset, it is absolutely shocking, and it might shock some here this morning. It will certainly shock some who perhaps listen to these videos on the internet or whatever, and it may shock some as you repeat what I'm about to say to others. It is simple, but it is shocking what Paul says in these verses. I've given you a very simple outline. There it is in the sermon notes. There's the title, Known by God. There's our text, you already know it, Galatians 4, 8 through 11, and there are four very simple points, an outline of Paul's argument in these verses. Point number one, very simple, he reminds them, his audience, of their former condition. Verse 8, formerly, formerly. So prior to, prior to, before, when you did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So that was your former condition. You did not know God. You had no knowledge of God. And you were actually slaves to those that by nature are not gods. In other words, uh, you were in the grip of idolatry. Now, he's writing to those who are mostly Gentiles in Galatia. And so much of his audience, they probably worship Zeus, Apollo. You think of that pantheon of Roman and Greek gods. That's probably what was common in that day. Well, that was your position formerly. You did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You were in the grips of idolatry. You were in the grips, simply put, of paganism. That's the first point. Second point is this. He reminds them of their present condition, verse 9. But now. So there's a contrast. Formerly, verse 8, verse 9. But now, their present condition. You have come to know God or rather to be known by God. Conversion. You have left idolatry behind you. You have come to know the one true living God, or rather, more, more succinctly, you have come to be known by God. His third point, he warns them of the absurdity of living under the law. Look at the question that takes formation in the middle of verse 9. How can you, given what you were formerly, what you are now in the present, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? In other words, how can you turn back to what? Turn back again to what? Where they were formerly. Where were they formerly? They were enslaved to idols. They were what? Pagans, right? And so given what you were formerly, 
what you claim to be now currently, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. What is he referring to there? He's referring to the Old Testament law. He's referring to the Mosaic covenant. Uh, You want to go back and you want to be circumcised. You want to go back and you want to observe all those days, months, years, and all those festivals and feasts. You want to go back under that sacrificial system. Uh, You want to go back and observe all of those dietary laws and all those laws of cleansing and all of that stuff. Uh, You want to go back and do that. Well, please understand, in going back to do that, you are turning back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, and you are again being enslaved to those things. What is Paul doing? And this is what is shocking. What is he doing? He is equating Judaism with what? Paganism. That is shocking. As far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, Judaism is paganism. And this is what he is warning them of. He is warning them of this danger they face of exchanging one type of bondage, paganism, for another, Judaism. I'll insert a thought here, pastoral application. A lot of people need to hear that today. A lot of people need to hear that today. I get dismayed by the number of professing Christians I meet And you've heard me say this before. I don't think it's a hobby horse. I I think we need to be forthright in saying this because it's a problem. It is a huge problem. The number of professing Christians trying to live back under Judaism that I meet. The number of professing Christians who think, you know, celebrating the Feast of the Tabernacles or Passover is a cool thing. Uh, The number of Christians who think, well, maybe there is something to those dietary laws and observing all those things. Uh, The number of believers who even think, well, the Jews, they've got their way, we've got our way, but we're both sort of working to the same God. No, my friend, Judaism is paganism. Judaism is idolatry. The Lord Jesus Christ has come, and he is the fulfillment of the whole thing. And to go back and live under that law, To go back and think there is something meritorious about that law. To go back and think, well, there's something there that will make me super spiritual. It is to disparage the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the end, the completion, the fulfillment of it all. And this is Paul's argument. How can you turn back again? How can you do that? How can you go back to paganism? to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. And he adds a fourth point to his argument right there in verse 11. What is it? He expresses his concern that perhaps he has labored in vain. Right? Maybe this has just been pointless. I I preached the word to you. I did so in, in tears. I have, I have prayed over you. I've lost, oh, the number of sleepless nights because of you. And I'm putting ink to paper here now, trying to, trying to set things right, set the record straight, uh, right, uh, correct your thinking, confront these false teachers. But this, 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 this again, that word, who, ha, who has bewitched you into thinking such a thing? 
No, my friends, oh, take a view of redemptive history. Understand what God is doing. Understand that the Lord Jesus Christ has come. And please understand that the promise is fulfilled. In you, that is in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It's come, it's arrived, the age of fulfillment. And the law has passed away and has therefore become obsolete. That is the essence of Paul's argument in this passage. What we want to focus in on is what it reveals concerning the nature of conversion. Again, you have those temporal references. Start of verse 8. Formerly, there's a time in view. Formerly, before something. Verse 9, but now, after something. And the something, of course, is conversion. And four things I want us to grasp concerning conversion as they arise from this text. Number one, conversion is liberation from enslavement to idolatry. Conversion is liberation, freedom from enslavement to idolatry. It's right there in the eighth verse, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. In the case of his audience, for the most part, he is making reference again to that pantheon of Greek Roman gods. You know them. You probably studied something of this back in your school days. And those words, Zeus and Venus and Apollo and the Hades and the rest of them, are terms still, still well known to us. And so these were, these were individuals who actually made idols uh, representing these gods and would have these idols in their homes, have these idols in their places of work, obviously have these idols and images in their places of worship, and much of their worship would involve prostrating themselves before these idols and in making offerings, oblations to them. That was their former condition. They were enslaved to idolatry. Well, conversion is freedom liberation from enslavement to idolatry. In our day, in our day, yes, it might involve liberation from worshiping literal images and idols. You think of Buddhism, for example. A Buddhist who is converted is being freed, liberated from the actual worship of idols. Hindus, the same thing. Idols or images are a big part of their worship. And so it may entail literal images and statues in our day. It may entail simply false religions in our day. A Muslim who is converted is converted from a false religion. A Jew who is converted is converted from a false religion. A Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon who is converted, they are converted from a false religion. That false religion is a form of idolatry. And so their conversion entails what? Freedom from that form of idolatry. It might thirdly entail or involve what? False concepts of God. This comes a little closer to home. This has direct application, I think, to us here in the South, us here in Texas in particular, and in our communities, where we would find so many who would profess faith in the Lord Jesus. We would find so many who would agree with us when we speak of God, the creator of heavens and earth, and the Lord Jesus dying upon the cross, places called heaven and hell, they would agree with these things. They would have absolutely no problem with these things. 
And yet their minds are occupied, filled with, in actual fact, a false concept of God. A false concept of God, which in the final analysis is a form of idolatry. A form of idolatry from which they must be converted. I'll give you perhaps one of the greatest idols we find in our immediate environs. It is this. God is all mercy and no justice. That is an idol. And yet that is probably what most people we rub shoulders with believe. It may be what you believe. God is all mercy and no justice. Meaning what? God is merciful whether I repent or not. I was painfully reminded of this uh, some months ago. I was reading a newspaper article. Incident north of the border, not the Red River, the other border, 49th parallel. We're way up north here. And it was a, a very sad. It was a, a, a mother in this column. She'd been interviewed, passing of her son. Her son, uh, I think 18 years of age, killed suddenly in an automobile accident. And um, she was pouring out her soul, the poor woman, and um, reminiscing on his upbringing. He was a good boy. And uh, lamenting some of the decisions he began to make as a teenager. And really lamenting the life he had lived since he was about 14 or 15 years of age and um, not a good boy at all, her own words. Never been to church, never took him to church, but she believed in God. And uh, her hope was in what? That God is merciful. That was her hope for her son. It wasn't merely her hope, it was her confidence. She said it explicitly in this article uh, that... um, I know God is, I know God is merciful. Oh, I, I weep for that woman, her loss. I weep even more for the idol on account of the fact that she is worshiping an idol. She has a false concept of God, which is actually a form of idolatry. And conversion might involve, yes, freedom from literal images, idols, statues. It might involve freedom from false religions, and it might involve freedom from false concepts of God, and it might, fourthly, involve freedom from anything that takes the place of God in our lives, anything that takes the place of God in our hearts, wealth, travel, sports, apparel, food, sex, security, popularity, success, emotions such as fear, anger, bitterness, envy, anything that occupies the supreme position in our hearts and in the final analysis has the grip on the affections of our hearts is an idol. And conversion is what? It is to be free of. It is to be liberated from enslavement to those idols. And so Paul gives thanksgiving, different epistles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He gives thanks for the Thessalonian believers. Why? Because they have been converted. Converted from what? From idolatry to worship the living and true God. Whatever the nature of the idolatry, they had left it behind. And they were now serving 
their minds were enthralled with and their hearts were gripped with God, the true and living God. This is the essence of conversion. It is a liberation story. It is a freedom story whereby we leave behind us enslavement to idolatry and our heart's affections are now set upon God alone. Here's a second thing we must understand concerning conversion. It is knowing God. And so back in verse 8, what does he say? How does he begin? Formerly, when you did not know God. Now what does he say at the outset of verse 9? But now that you have come to know God. Now, here's a tricky question. And here's a bit of a sticky point. What does he mean by this? Formerly, you did not know God, but now you have come to know God. Please grasp, there are two ways to know God. There are two ways to knowing. There is knowing him factually, and there is knowing him relationally. Very important we get this. There is knowing factually, and there is knowing relationally. Paul is not speaking of the first. He is not saying, look, formerly you did not know God factually, but now you do know God factually. That is not what he is saying. We know that's not what he is saying, because in Romans chapter 1, he tells us what? Everyone knows God factually. Everyone knows him factually. He tells us in Romans chapter 1, he makes it very clear that what we can know of God, God himself has made it clear, he has made it evident, because he has revealed it in the things he has made, so that we are without excuse. The problem, I think I went down this road last Sunday, the problem, the issue is not with factual knowledge. Everyone knows God. Everyone knows he is the creator. Everyone knows something of his power and his wisdom, and everyone knows they are ultimately accountable to him. That is why in the book of Acts chapter 17, it's recorded as Paul passes through the city of Athens, he engages with the intellectuals of his day, the philosophers of his time, and uh, they gather in the Areopagus, isn't it? And uh, a bit of a debate ensues, and Paul preaches a little bit of a sermon, and in that sermon, he only makes two points. You know what points he makes? As he engages these Gentiles, these philosophers, Stoics and Epicureans and everything else of his day, Aristotelians and Platonists, undoubtedly, he only makes two points. Point number one is this, God is a creator. Point number two is this, God is the judge. Why does he make those two points? He makes those two points because he is not informing them of something they do not know. He is reminding them of what they already know. The problem is what? They have suppressed the truth. And all he is doing is bringing to the light what they have willfully suppressed by their own unrighteousness, what they know to be factually true. There is a God. This God created everything, including me. And there is a day of reckoning coming. That's the road Paul goes down as he engages them because he understands. The issue is not, hey, let me make you aware of something you don't know. Oh, they already do know it. They have suppressed it. And he confronts them with what they know to be true, factual knowledge. And so that's not what Paul is talking about here back in Galatians chapter 4. This is not a factual knowledge. This is a relational knowledge. Formerly, when you did not know God relationally. But, verse 9, you have come to know God relationally. What does that mean? 
What does it mean to know God relationally? It involves quite a bit. Let me boil it all down to simply two points. The first is this. To know God relationally is to know Him as Father. And is to know Him as Father in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the context tells us. you still in chapter 4. Go back to verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. To know God relationally is to embrace Him as a Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to know God relationally is to possess new affections and inclinations. And so it is to know, yes, God becomes my Father in Jesus Christ because in Jesus Christ my sins are forgiven. Not only are my sins are forgiven, that's the negative, but the positive, I become a part of God's family. Therefore, I become an heir. I am now a son. Therefore, God is now my Father. And this wonderful work having taken place, this wonderful change now in who I am in God's sight, well, what wells up within me? New affections. New inclinations. I now love this God. And my love for this God becomes evident in my life as John makes clear in his first epistle, chapter 3, no one, no one who abides in Christ, no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. You might know him factually. Big deal. It's not going to make any change. When we know him relationally, as Father in Christ Jesus, the product, the result, are new inclinations and new affections which then manifest themselves in obedience. Oh, that is conversion. Conversion, yes, is liberation from enslavement to idolatry. And conversion is knowing God. Thirdly, conversion is a result of God knowing us. Still in the ninth verse, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. And so there's a lot more going on here. Yes, there's been this great move on your part. You have left behind your former life. You have left behind your idolatry, whatever form it took. And now your heart's affections are set on God. And you now know him relationally. You know him as father in Christ Jesus. But please understand that lying behind this great movement, transference on your part, lies a work of God. You have been known by God. Now again, we know in two ways. We know factually and we know relationally. What is meant here? Is this a factual knowledge? No. God knows everybody factually. God knows everything about everyone who has ever lived, is currently living, or will ever live. He knows everything. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing escapes his gaze. This is not a factual knowledge. It is what? It is a relational knowledge whereby God has taken us as his own, as Paul declares in 2 Timothy 2, 19. The Lord knows those who are 
his. Factually? No, 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 no. This is relational. The Lord knows those who are his. Or as the Lord Jesus himself declared, John 10, 14, I know my own. They're mine. I know them. I have a relationship with them who are his own. He tells us in his great prayer in John 17, verse 2, You have given me authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Still in John 17, verse 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Still in John 17, verse 24, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. And so, yes, it's wonderful. It's wonderful that we've left idolatry behind. It's wonderful that we've come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful that we now know God as a Father in Christ Jesus. But please understand, my friend, that under it all, there is something of far greater significance and magnitude that has transpired. It is this. God has known you as a Christian in Christ Jesus as one of his own. That is a great truth. It is a perplexing truth for many. And yet it is a comforting truth when understood and applied to the heart. It's also a challenging truth. Uh, you ponder this phrase, known by God, and what it means to be known by Him relationally, claimed by Him as one of His own. It warns us. It's a warning. It's a, a dire warning. You go, for example, to Matthew chapter 7, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord Jesus differentiates between the narrow way and the broad way. He differentiates between the fool and the wise man and the foundations upon which they build. And he acknowledges that a day is coming when many will claim, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not say this? Was this not true of us? And the Lord Jesus will declare, I never knew you. Relationally, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You can go over to Matthew 25 where the Lord Jesus tells that parable, well known to most of us, I'm sure. Do you remember the ten women, the ten virgins who were waiting on the bridegroom? And five are prepared, they're ready with the oil. Five are unprepared. And the bridegroom returns. And what was the response to those who were unprepared? The Lord Jesus makes it perfectly clear, painfully clear, truly I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. Are you known by God? Friend, right, right, right now on the spot, does he know you? Does he know you? Well, how do I know? Do you know him? Have you taken him as your father in Christ Jesus? And in your heart, are those new affections and new inclinations present whereby you are now living for him, for his glory? Is it true of you that this change has taken place, this, trans this transformation known as conversion? Well, Paul gives a frightening warning. I, I don't want to belabor this too much. And I want to be sensitive to those who at times have a tendency to misapply what is intended for others. But here we go at the risk of confusion. Here it is. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He's writing to a church, folks. He is writing to a church. He is writing to a church in which there are a number of people who have a factual knowledge of God, but they have no relational knowledge of God. And the fact that they have no relational knowledge of God is evident in what? They are living regularly in the muck and the mire. They are living in their sin. And on they go, living in their sin, perhaps imbibing of the, that mindset so prevalent in our day, perhaps prostrating themselves before that idol, that misconception of God. Well, God is all mercy, but no justice. No, he isn't, friends. God is all mercy. Uh, God is actually more merciful than we can probably imagine in the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no mercy. Where there is mercy experienced, mercy experienced from the hand of God, there will be mercy expressed in a transformed life. Where mercy is really understood and mercy is embraced, there will be a life transformed, changed, altered by that mercy. And Paul, pastorally, again, hear these words. It might apply to one, just one here this day. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. It is a dire warning if this applies to you. It is a dire warning no matter what you profess with your lips and no matter how secure you think you might be and no matter how well you might be able to cross your theological T's and dot your doctrinal I's. It doesn't matter. The question is this. Does God know you? And do you know him? Well, how do you know? Is it obvious that you know him? In the life you live, in the battle you wage against sin, or there you, is it the case of there you lie in your lethargy, and there you've been for months, years, perhaps your whole entire so-called Christian sojourn? Well, friend, you need, to, you need to face the facts. It is entirely within the realm of possibility that you have deceived yourself. And the admonition, the exhortation you have to hear is what? You must be born again. You must be converted. You must turn from your idolatry. And you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace God as Father in Christ Jesus. And in so doing, the affections and the inclinations that then well up within the soul, manifesting themselves in a transformed life. Oh, friend, it is the question of questions. Have you been born again? Have you been converted? Oh, conversion is a result of God knowing us. Not only does it warn us, it assures us. It assures us that when God knows us, this is a love he has set upon us before the foundation of the world. And this is a love that knows, experiences no ebbs or flows. This is a love that experiences no change or alteration on his part because it is a love that is not contingent upon anything in us. It is a love apart from merit. Not only that, it transforms us. Oh, it elicits gratitude when we really get it. We are known 
by God. It cultivates humility, poverty of spirit. It compels service. It encourages forgiveness. It promotes holiness. One more pastoral application. To be known by God, it comforts us. Hear these words, John 10, 3. The sheep hear his voice. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Oh, to be known by God is to be embraced with a special love. And it is to be assured of the fact, comforted by the reality, that he is aware of our needs He is aware of our tears. He is aware of our fears. He is aware of our worries. He is intimately acquainted with every facet of our lives and fiber of our being. And he cares for us and watches over us as a loving heavenly father. This has given me great comfort this past month, past week. We reflect on what happened last Sunday and just how horrendous it was. And it still resonates with us and how troubling the entire ordeal. And we know, we know, we are called to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, are we not? But friends, we also know security is an illusion, don't we? Security is an illusion. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And he is a loving, heavenly father whose plans are best for his children. And so I am going to be as wise as a serpent. Do not misunderstand what I am saying. I will employ wisdom. I will employ caution. I will employ good common sense and reason that God has given to me. But at the same time, I will look to him and I will remind myself daily of this fact. I am known by God. I am known. Does that resonate with you at all? I am known by God. And he has claimed me for his own. And he is favorably disposed toward me and always, always, always has my best interest in view. Oh, what comfort that imparts. As Richard Baxter so eloquently put it, oh, to be known by God, it is the full and final comfort of the believer. The full and final comfort of the believer. There's a fourth point here, just quickly as we wrap it up. I won't belabor this one. Fourth point concerning conversion It is an ongoing process. Verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? So the threat is there. The danger is there that they'll return to idolatry. It's still such a strong pull on them. Paganism, whatever form it takes. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Please understand, conversion has a starting point, but it has no end point until glory. You are still being converted if you are a Christian. 
and I am still being converted. We normally think of it a one-time historical event, don't we? It's something of a misnomer when we use conversion in that sense. Conversion has a starting point. We are converted, but that process of conversion is ongoing. And the struggle and the battle we will encounter daily as those idols will rear their ugly heads continually in our lives. We will feel that pull upon our heart's affections toward any number of idols, any number of things competing for our love and our desire and our delight. Hence, we are called to what? We are called to persevere in the faith. We are called to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We are called to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice daily and continually and repeatedly. And above all else, as we conclude, we are called to fix our eyes on this great truth. We are known by God. One of the old English Puritans put it this way. You are a Christian. You are a Christian. One highly beloved who has found favor with God. It's beautiful. You are a Christian, one highly beloved, who has found favor with God. Quote doesn't end there. Here's the rest. Live like it. Live like it. You are one who is highly beloved, who has found favor with God. Live like it. There is all the motivation we need to awaken from lethargy. There is all the motivation we need to persevere in the faith. There is all the motivation we need to fight the good fight. There is all the motivation we need to put to death that sin and temptation which so easily entangles us. We are, as Christians, known by God, our Heavenly Father. We pray that you would impress the truth of this upon your people's hearts this day. And may it indeed cultivate and foster and encourage love in our hearts. And may this resound for the good of your people and the glory of your name. For unbelievers present, may you impress upon them the stark and harsh reality of their condition before you, while also impressing upon them graciously and mercifully that there is forgiveness for sins. For all who come to you in saving faith through Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.